Morning, brothers and sisters. We are still in the book of Jude. And Jude is such a very practical book in the time in which we live. If you remember, just in quick review, Jude wrote to a group of Christians, and he was just going to write about their common salvation. But then he tells us that he finds it necessary to appeal to them. He changes the direction of his letter, and he wants to appeal to them to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. Why? Because certain people were creeping into the church and they were turning the grace of God into license for immorality and they were denying their only master and Lord Jesus Christ. Then he goes on in verses 5 through 7, as we talked a couple of weeks back, to give three examples of how God will judge people for their unbelief, for their rebellion to authority, and for their sensuality. And he gives the example of the Israelites in the wilderness. He gives the example of the angels who left their high place to follow Satan. And then he gives the example of Sodom and Gomorrah. And he talks about that. And then, last time we were here, Cody talked about verses 8 through 10 and the characteristics of these false prophets. So he talks about their doom, their destination. Now he's talking about their characteristics. He says they rely on their dreams, they defile the flesh, they reject authority, and they blaspheme the glorious ones. They blaspheme things they don't even understand about. And then we get today to verse 11 through 13. And in this passage, we're going to see three examples of men who were false prophets, false followers. And then we're going to see six descriptions of these false prophets. So today we're going to look at the profile of false teachers. What do they look like? To contend for the faith, we must know what a false prophet looks like and how they respond. I was very encouraged as we sang this this morning that God is sovereign over everything. And that should give us all great hope in the midst of false teaching, false prophets, false religions that abound all around. It can become very concerning, but God is sovereign over all these things. And he tells us here in verse 2 that he talks, he talks to the saints that they're called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ. That's a comfort, isn't it? In the midst of the wash of false teaching that goes on, around us that those who are his are kept by Jesus. That gives us great comfort. But we are still called to do what? To fight for the faith. To contend for the faith. We had such a good time last week with our missionary friends, Damon and Jen Cup, and their kids from Uganda. And their real goal was to equip pastors to proclaim the word and to fight against false teaching in that country. And amazingly, in a country in which there's not a lot of wealth, the doctrine that everyone is now teaching there is the health and wealth gospel. Years ago, John MacArthur took to task Joel Osteen over his book, Your Best Life Now. Joel Osteen uh, obviously has a mega church in Houston, meets at the Toyota Center. Tens of thousands of people go there to hear him speak every week. And yet, this man doesn't understand the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. MacArthur states, you need to understand, talking about Joel, that he's a pagan religionist in every sense. Jesus is a footnote that satisfies his critics and deceives his followers. He'll mention Jesus. He'll talk about some things like pray the prayer for Jesus But in reality, Jesus is just a footnote for him. The idea of this whole thing is that men have the power in themselves to change their lives. In his definitive book, Your Best Life Now, he says, that, and he says this ought to be a dead giveaway, that if this is your best life now, then guess where you're headed. Okay? 
This is the crux of the best life now. He says that anyone can create by faith and words the dreams he desires. Health, wealth, happiness, success. The list is always the same. Quoting from the book, If you develop an image of success, health, abundance, joy, peace, happiness, nothing on earth will be able to hold those things from you. So you just need to create this vision in your mind, and then by the power of your mind, you should be able to bring this to reality. Another quote, All of us are born for earthly greatness. You were born to win. MacArthur says, win what? God wants you to live in abundance. You were born to be a champion. He wants to give you the desires of your heart. Before we were formed, he prepared us to live abundant lives, to be happy, healthy, and whole. But when our thinking becomes contaminated, it no longer is in line with God's word. End quote. MacArthur asks, By the way, God's word is not the Bible. God's word is that word that comes to us mystically, spiritually, and tells us what we should want. So he's not looking at the word of God to get this doctrine. He is getting it from the Lord, he says. He has this vision that comes to him. Getting your thinking positive, and he will bring your desires to pass. He regards you as a strong, courageous, successful person. This is um, Osteen talking. You're on your way to a new level of glory. How do you get there? You believe, you visualize, you speak aloud. Osteen goes on to say, friend, there's a miracle in your mouth. To which MacArthur says, I think Isaiah might object to that. What was Isaiah's quote? I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. Another quote, I know these principles are true because they work for me and my wife. To which MacArthur responds, Oh, so that's the test of truth. Are you kidding? I know these things are true because they work for me and my wife. Surely, because you're at the top of the Ponzi scheme. Health and wealth is for those at the top. Everyone else is trying to get to the top. And it's amazing the number of people who follow after these type of teachers, and they are legion, and their books are found even in the Christian bookstore. When you try to find books by solid Christian teachers, you find a small shelf. These teachers take up huge sections in the Christian bookstore. In Second Timothy chapter 4, let's turn there right quick, as Paul's admonishing Timothy, this is the day in which we live, Second Timothy chapter 4. Verse 3. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. How can we have tens of thousands of people heading to a coliseum every week to hear teaching that doesn't even come from the Word of God? How can that be? It's because in reality we want to hear a message that appeals to our flesh. And the charge that, Timothy, that Paul gives to Timothy is preach the word in season and out of season. Rebuke, correct, train in righteousness. So Jude is admonishing these believers to contend for the faith that was once handed down. And the first word he uses in his admonition in verse 11 is woe. Woe to them. 
If you remember Matthew 23, Jesus had a lot of woes. For who? The Sadducees and Pharisees, who had taken religion and turned it toward themselves. And he, the woe is a thing saying what? Judgment is coming to you. Because of the way you've lived, judgment is coming. So the first thing Jude does in the passages we're looking at today in verse 11 is he gives us three examples of people to not follow. But better yet, people to look at to see the characteristics of a false prophet. Notice verse 11. For they walked in the way of Cain. Who's they? The false prophets. They walk in the way of Cain and abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error and perished in Korah's rebellion. So he picks three examples of false teachers, prophets, or followers. He lists Cain, he lists Balaam, and then finally he lists Korah. As we look at Cain... What was Cain's issue? He was the very first person born, the first person male born into this new world. And he had a brother Abel. And you remember the story, they went to worship God and Abel took a sacrifice that was worthy for God. It was something God had prescribed and Cain decided he wanted to bring his own offering in his own way. Cain is kind of the father of those who want to worship God their way. For the older generation, we know Burger King. Have it your way. We're going to fix the burger the way you want it. This is Cain. I will fix worship the way I want it. It's obvious from the scripture that God expected a sacrifice to take place. This is the way he was to be worshipped. And yet Cain wanted to use his own hands and create his own offering to be given to God. It's a false way of religion. We either worship God his way by grace through faith in Jesus Christ or we worship God in our own way with our own plan and how we're going to do it. And Cain is the example of that. It's what seemed right to him. The Bible says in Proverbs 14, 12, there's a way that seems right to a man, but in the end it leads to what? Death. The Bible says the road is broad that leads to destruction and many find it. Why? Because many want to live life their way. They want to worship God their way. And yet the scripture says narrow is the path and straight is the way that leads to eternal life and few find it. When you get right down to it, there's really only two ways. There's salvation by God's grace and then there's our own way and how we want to live it out. Cain is the example of these false prophets. They have created their own plan of how to get to God. They've created a gospel that is not the gospel and that will not save. Merle Unger, who in his commentary writes, Cain's false worship represents the fountainhead of all spurious religion, the essence of which is man's approach to God in his own way rather than God's prescribed way. So we see this. The scripture tells us in Hebrews 11 that Abel offered a better sacrifice than Cain. He offered a a sacrifice that was acceptable to God. Hebrews 9.22 tells us that without the shedding of blood, there is no what? Remission of sin. The blood sacrifice is what God wanted. Cain was not willing to give it. And out of that, Cain killed his brother. So Cain is the first example of a false prophet, someone who creates his own plan of what the gospel is. As we just got through listening to this account of your best life now, this is the gospel. You can have your best life now, just visualize it, and by the power you have, you can speak it and you can believe it into existence. And again, it's all about who? It's all about you. You can have your best life now. The second example he gives is that of Balaam. So these people walked in the way of Cain, and they abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error. Who was Balaam? Balaam was a, was a false prophet. 
the people of Israel were coming toward the promised land and they were kind of destroying every nation in their path. And a man named Balak, who was king of, of um, I forgot the name of the kingdom, he was king of Moab. Um, he was the king of Moab and he, and he said, Balaam, listen, could you please just put a curse on the people of Israel? Balaam wanted the money he would get for putting this curse. And so his prophecy was all about him getting what he wanted. He wanted the financial remuneration for the prophecy that he gave. If we turn to Numbers 22, we'll see what a great prophet he was. He was not able to prophesy the way he wanted because God put words in his mouth that even he didn't want to say. But we get down to the end and God is really angry with Balaam. In verse 22 of Numbers 22, we read this. But God's anger was kindled because he went... And the angel of the Lord took his stand in the way of, the, of, his, of his adversary. Now he was riding on the donkey, and his two servants were with him. And this part gets sad and funny all at the same time. And the donkey saw the angel of the Lord standing in the road with a drawn sword in his hand. And the donkey turned aside out of the road and went into the field. And Balaam struck the donkey to turn her into the road. And then the angel of the Lord stood in a narrow path between the vineyards with a wall on either side. And when the donkey saw the angel of the Lord, she pushed against the wall and pressed Balaam's foot against the wall. So he struck her again. Then the angel of the Lord went ahead and stood in a narrow path where there was no way to turn either to the right or to the left. And when the donkey saw the angel of the Lord, she laid down under Balaam. And Balaam's anger was kindled, and he struck the donkey with his staff. Then the Lord opened the mouth of the donkey, and she said to Balaam, What have I done to you that you have struck me these three times? And then this is amazing. And Balaam said to the donkey, like, would we even be talking to the donkey at this point? Because you have made a fool of me, I wish I had a sword in my hand, for then I would kill you. And then the donkey has to reason with Balaam. Am I not your donkey on which you have ridden all your life long to this day? We've had a really good relationship. Thought we were getting along well. Is it my habit to treat you this way? And he said, no. And then the Bible says the Lord opened the eyes of Balaam and he saw the angel. So here is Balaam, supposedly a prophet who speaks truth. Who sees the angel? The donkey sees the angel. Balaam does not see the angel. God just shows us there that he reveals himself to who he wants to reveal himself. And people can claim to be a prophet. They can claim all these great things. But the reality is God opens the eyes for people to see God and see who he is. So the donkey was more prophetic than the prophet because of the foolishness of this prophet, because he was only out for his own gain. Balaam also led the Moabites to marry in with the Israelites and to cause them to fall into immorality. So the first example, Cain, it's all about making his own religion, his own way for his own, his own sake. For Balaam, religion is all about what? Profit. Whatever I can make out of the situation. Number three, the rebellion of Korah. Notice here as we read along, back in Jude. And abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error and perished in Korah's rebellion. Who was Korah? Korah was a Levite. If we turn to Numbers 16, we'll see the story there. Jude expects the people to remember the story. We will use it to refresh our memory. 
So Korah and some of his men, they decide. Well, let's just read the scripture here quickly and see. Korah um, and some other, other men, Datham and Abiram, um, they took men and they rose up before Moses with a number of the people of Israel, 250 chiefs of the congregation, chosen from the assembly, well-known men. They take some of the cream of the crop of Israel. They approach Moses. They assembled themselves together against Moses and against Aaron and said to them, you have gone too far for all in the congregation are holy, every one of them, and the Lord is among them. Why then do you exalt yourselves above the assembly of the Lord? So they basically questioned Moses' authority and Aaron's authority. And they said, you're acting like you're the leaders here. Really, all of us are holy. And Moses bows down before the Lord. And, they, and Moses puts a test together. He says, okay, come tomorrow, bring your censers, fill them with incense, and stand before the Lord, and God will show who is the leader. Remember, the characteristic of a false prophet is they are in rebellion against authority. Remember the angels, how they rebelled against God. So here they are in rebellion. So the next day, remember what happens. They stand before the Lord, and Moses warns everybody to get away from their tents. And so here's Korah and Natham and Abiram, and they're out in the wilderness. And Moses basically says, God, show these people that you, who you approve of by doing something to these people that nothing else has ever happened. Cause the ground to open up and swallow them. And literally the ground opened up, swallowed all of them. And the men who had the censers in their hands, there was 250 of them, the fire of the Lord came down and burned them up. What is amazing is, as the people fled from that situation, the next morning they were grumbling and complaining again about Moses and Aaron and how they had brought them out there to destroy them. And at that point, a plague broke out among the people. And Aaron had to run into the middle of the people with an offering to the Lord to stop the plague. But 14,000 men were killed in that situation. So Korah is an example of our false prophets in that they, they, see, they rebel against authority. They're their own authority. They're the ones who need to be in control of the situation. H.A. Ironside said, the way of Cain is false religion. The error of Balaam is ministry for gain. And the error of Korah is rebellion against Christ's authority. How are you going to know a false prophet? Real simple. They have their own way to God. They're in it for the money. And finally, they rebel against God's established authorities. God had established Moses and Aaron as the authorities over the people in the wilderness. And these people were able, it's amazing, to get 250 of the well-known people of the community to rise up with them to oppose Moses. This shouldn't surprise us. Remember the warning we received from Paul in Acts chapter 20? Let's turn there real quickly. Acts 20, verses 29 and 30. Paul's talking to the elders. This is the last time he's going to talk to them. He's on his way to Jerusalem. He gets imprisoned there, and then he finishes his life out in a Roman prison. But he's talking to these brothers, and he says, Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock. Verse 28. In which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers or shepherds. To care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. Men, you're, you're shepherding a group of people who've been bought with the blood of Jesus. Be diligent in how you oversee them. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. What are wolves? False teachers. And... Even from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. His admonition, therefore be alert, 
Remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. Paul trusted this congregation to the grace of God, but he charged the leaders of that congregation to be on the alert that people from without would come in with false teaching, that people from within would rise up and what? Try to supplant the authority of the elders and to lead them in a way that was false. So we see these three examples, vivid pictures from the Old Testament of false Prophets, false followers of him. Then he turns in verses 12 and 13 to give six descriptions of the false prophets. And he pulls everything from heaven and earth and nature to describe these false teachers. As we go back to Jude... Verse 12. So let's pick up the momentum again. Woe to them, for they walk in the way of Cain and abandon themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error and perished in Korah's rebellion. These false prophets will perish just like Korah's. Korah and his false prophets perished. God will judge them. But they perished because of their rebellion against authority. And their false worship of God. These, continuing to refer to the false prophets, are hidden reefs at your love feasts. As they feast with you without fear. Shepherds feeding themselves. Waterless clouds. Swept along by winds. Fruitless trees in late autumn. Twice dead, uprooted, wild waves of the sea, casting up the foam of their own shame, wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. What a descriptive two verses. He calls them hidden reefs. reefs. He calls them shepherds. He calls them waterless clouds. He calls them fruitless trees. He calls them wild waves of the sea. And he calls them wandering stars. So what do we learn about these false prophets from these two straightforward verses? First, he calls them hidden reefs at your love feasts. The love feast in, in the New Testament was you had the Lord's table and you had the Lord's supper and they took it very regularly. But along with the Lord's supper was this feast of eating that either went before or after you took the Lord's table. And Paul talks about this a little bit in 1 Corinthians 11 where he tells him you go ahead and you get drunk or you go ahead and you eat all the, the, all the good stuff that's there and you, and you run ahead of people and you're basically... Um, Gorging yourself on the food of the love feast. So here we have the context of the love feast. Here we have the context of the Lord's table. And we know as we take the Lord's table that we have to do what? Examine ourselves, don't we? And what was the admonition in 1 Corinthians 11? You need to examine yourself because some people have taken the Lord's table in an unworthy manner. And they have what? Become sick? Or they have what? Died. So these false prophets are like hidden reefs. So here we are, we're in a boat, and we're going through a canal, or we're going through some mountains, or whatever we're going through, and all we can see is the what? The water. We don't know for sure what's under the water, do we? But these false prophets are like hidden reefs. They're there, and what happens when a ship hits a reef? It usually rips a, rips a hole in the side of it and everything is lost. So the two things we pick up from the hidden reefs is number one, 
They're hidden. False prophets are not obvious. As MacArthur would say, they, Olstein uses Jesus as a what? Footnote. We're not going to not talk about Jesus. We're going to talk about him, but we, we, our message may be completely different than that. So there's going to be enough truth mixed into it to where they're going to remain hidden for those who are what? Immature and don't understand sound doctrine. So they're hidden and they're what? Dangerous. They can shipwreck people in their faith. They can lead people down the path to destruction. This is what false prophets do. They take people down a path that leads away from Jesus and eternal life into destruction. Notice that they're taking the love feast and it says they'll feast with you without what? Fear. There's no fear of judgment for taking the Lord's table in an unworthy manner. There's no examining the sin in their life. Remember, they're arrogant, they're boastful, they're proud. They create their own religion. And they're very bold in what they do. If you look at 2 Peter 2, it, it describes them as well as being very bold, very arrogant, very loud. And they're very confident in what they are doing. And there is no concern for the Lord's table. Spurgeon addresses this as he talks about Christians in his day. He says some of the best Christians who come to the Lord's table come there in great fear and trembling. And I have known some who have had an undoubted right to be there, half afraid to come. Yet those very persons who have a holy fear lest they should come amiss are those who really ought to come. If you come to the Lord's table in fear because of your life and you deal with your sin, you should come. Well, I didn't have a great week. That's not the issue. The issue is, do you see your sin? Have you run to Jesus as your advocate? Is Jesus the one who's covering your sin with his blood? If you see that and acknowledge that, come to the table and partake and rejoice that you're forgiven and rejoice that he loves you. But the very people in this passage who are coming to the Lord's table have what? No fear. There's no fear of God's judgment. There's all kinds of confidence in their own gospel, in their own religion, and in their own righteousness. Notice that not, they're not only hidden reefs, they're also shepherds. Shepherds feeding themselves. What's a shepherd supposed to do? A shepherd is supposed to lead the flock to where who gets to eat? The sheep get to eat. These false teachers are shepherds, and they're shepherding who? Themselves. Again, it's all about them. It's all about themselves and what they are about. They're not there to care for the sheep. They could care less about the sheep. It's all about themselves. Third, they're what? Waterless clouds. We've gone through a drought. We know what it's like when we don't have rain. We know what it's like to pray for rain, don't we? And we know what it's like when things kind of build up in the sky and you're going, okay, today we might get some rain. My brown grass might actually begin to turn green again. And then what happens when the clouds build and then the wind blows and they go on by and there's not a drop of water? He said, that's what these false prophets are. They promise what? Life. They promise rain. They were promised refreshment. And yet, they don't give anything. They promise you that they know the way to eternal life. Just do what I say and you will have eternal life or you'll have your best life now. But their promise is empty. 
just like the waterless clouds, no rain, no refreshment, no life. Then he describes them as fruitless trees. Notice in the passage, fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead, uprooted. In autumn is always the time of what? Harvest. We expect at autumn time for there to be fruit on the trees. We come to the tree looking for that fruit. These false prophets are a tree. They're an autumn tree, but when you get there, guess what? There's no fruit. They are, as he says, twice dead, uprooted. What do we do at the end of harvest when a tree does not bear fruit? We dig it up. It doesn't need to take up the ground anymore. It's digging up. It's uprooted. These false prophets have no fruit. Remember Jesus' words in Matthew 3, 8? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. John talked to the crowd that was running to him at baptism. And he said, listen, don't just come running here like snakes trying to run from the fire. Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. How come there was no fruit on these trees? There was no repentance. There was no faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. There was faith in their own gospel that produced no fruit. The trees were twice dead. They provided no fruit. And they literally had been uprooted and they were dead. We've all, have, we, have we ever dug up a fruit tree and let it sit there with the, outside the ground for a while? It gets really stiff. It's really dead. It makes a great burning wood because of that. Matthew fifteen thirteen, Jesus says, Every plant that my Father has not planted will be what? Uprooted. Why are they uprooted? Because they weren't planted by God. They were not planted. These false prophets weren't Christians at one point and fell away. They never were believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. They were never planted by the Father. But we know from this passage they can look like the real thing, can't they? That shouldn't surprise us. Satan masquerades as what? An angel of light, doesn't he? And he can be pretty hard to distinguish in a situation. And so do the false prophets. They appear to be genuine. They appear to be sincere. They appear to speak the truth. Then he calls them wild waves. So what is the purpose of a biblical teacher? A biblical teacher is to dig into God's word and pull up what? Treasure, right? We're to take the word of God, we're to dig into it, and we're to bring up treasure and share it with the congregation, right? For these prophets, they're wild waves. What do they, what do they dredge up? What comes from them? Their theological and moral filth is brought to the surface. If you've ever been to the beach when you've had a big storm and things have really gotten churned up and turned up, and you come to the beach the next day, what's on the beach? There's all kinds of trash and seaweed and other muck and mire that's been stirred up from the bottom of the ocean and thrown up on the beach. You couldn't see it out in the ocean, but after the storm, it turned it all up and threw it up here on the beach. Eventually, these false teachers, their theological filth and their moral filth will show up on the shore. One televangelist, Jimmy Swaggart, who had a worldwide following, eventually was caught multiple times with a prostitute. We have Jim Baker and his whole scenario and what went on there. Eventually, things come to the surface. No matter how much is hidden, no matter how much is under, eventually stuff starts coming to the surface. And we see that no matter how good the words were, the life did not follow. This is kind of the problem with TV evangelists, isn't it? They can live a completely different reality, but as long as when the lights come on and they say what they're going to say, they can at least give somewhat of the appearance of what? Wisdom, right? Maybe. If you listen very well, you can tell that's not, that's not the case. 
I remember um, reading about Benny Hinn. And Benny tells the story of how he went to this room one day and a demon came in after him. And the temperature in the room dropped to below freezing temperatures. And all the furniture in the room was levitated and floating in the room. And he, of course, did what? He cast the demon out. And as the demon fled out, he went to the door and yelled at the demon and said, Listen, you come back here right now and get this room back in order the way you had it, way I had it before you got here. What? You talk that way to a demon? This situation really happened? What do we what do we read here in Jude? Even the archangel Michael did not what? Rebuke the demon. What did he say? The Lord rebuke you. So if we know the word of God, as we listen to what's being said, even watching TV, we can pick up the false teaching that is there. I remember one day, and I didn't watch much um, in the TBN network, but I happened to be on the channel one day and Jesse Duplantis was on. And Jesse is was called the Raging Cajun. He's kind of wild. He's kind of out there. And he was, he was waxing eloquent about salvation. And he says, some people believe that the Jews have to believe in Jesus to be saved. I'm here to tell you that's not the case. God's going to save them without Jesus. I'm just like, whoa, where did that come from? And then he goes, now I'm really beginning to preach. And I'm really beginning to prophesy. And he just kept going on and on and on. How do we protect ourselves from false teachers? We have to know the word of God. The word of God is our protection against all the foolishnesses out there. Now, we obviously talked about people on TV and high-profile people. But there's people in local churches, there's pastors in local churches who can and do teach false doctrine. How do we protect ourselves from that? We must understand the word of God. Lastly, he calls them wandering stars. These are stars that have left their place and they disappear into darkness. For a while they're seen and then they're gone. These stars have left their place. Sailors depend upon the stars to give them guidance so that they end up at the right destination. What happens when you put your trust in a wandering star as a sailor? You end up not arriving where you plan to arrive. If you trust in a false prophet, if you trust in someone who has tweaked the gospel, and we talked about the gospel this morning in First Light, there's a lot of people, even in Christian circles, who are trying to tweak the gospel so that it's more acceptable to people. We should be very careful not to tweak the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's the perfect prescription for salvation to everyone who believes. And so while the intention may be good, we can find ourselves, if we're tweaking the gospel, actually becoming a false prophet of the very gospel that we want to proclaim. So there we have it. Hidden reefs, shepherds feeding themselves, waterless clouds, fruitless trees, wild waves, wandering stars. And what does he say at the end? For whom the gloom of their darkness has been reserved forever. God's judgment on them is reserved. In Second Peter, he talks about their, their judgment is not sleeping. In other words, God is going to judge these people because of their false teaching. James 3.1 is an admonition to all of us who teach the word of God. Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. This word is life. This word has to be studied to be able to be handled properly. You can't just pick this thing up on the first swim and run through it and be able to properly interpret it. 
That's why Paul says, study to show yourself approved, a workman who doesn't need to be ashamed, who what? Rightly divides the word of truth. That's for sure the responsibility of the elders and the pastors of this church and every church is to rightly handle the word of God. But it's not just our responsibility. It's your responsibility to grow in your understanding of the word, to be students of the word of God, to be able to handle all of the false teaching that masquerades as truth. To protect your own soul, to protect, for you fathers, to protect the souls of your family, and to be able to call people out of falseness into what? Truth. We live in a country where we have amazing um, opportunity with the Word of God. We have it in multiple translations. We have multiple study tools. We have great online tools. And what's amazing is the American church in general has very little discernment when it comes to understanding sound doctrine and understanding and discerning truth from error. In Uganda, a lot of pastors don't even have a Bible or they have a part of the Bible or they have a translation of the Bible that's not all that great. When I was on a mission trip to Mexico, we had a pastor, we met with him, all he had was his Bible, he had nothing else, he had no study tools, he had no other resources to help him. We live in an oasis of tools to help us better understand this word. The question is, are we availing ourselves of that? Are we availing ourselves of the chance to be equipped to handle the word? To be equipped on first light to share the gospel of Jesus Christ? We are literally swimming in a world of false doctrine and worldliness. It's everywhere. But with the word of God, we can be a lighthouse that points people to the one true salvation, Jesus Christ. MacArthur finishes his discussion with Olstein and asks this question, what is the source of this? What's the source of this teaching? Where does it come from? The answer is Satan. It is demonic. It is satanic. It's just not off-center. It's satanic. Then he says, why do I say this? Because health, wealth, prosperity, the fulfillment of all your dreams and your desires, that's what Satan always offers. That's called temptation. Based on the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of what? Life. That's exactly what corrupt, fallen, unregenerate people want. What does 2 Timothy say? They want someone to tickle their ears. They want someone to say what they want to say. Why do we have a stadium full of followers? Because we're being promised everything that our flesh, what? Desires. It's broad road preaching. Broad road preaching brings a lot of people to the meeting place. You can go right into Satan's system, make everybody feel religious, and turn their desires, their temptations, into somehow honorable desires. And then he talks about Jesus. Remember Jesus? The first thing Satan came to him with was what? You're hungry. You haven't eaten in 40 days. It's time to do what? Turn this rock into what? Bread. You're not getting the respect of the crowds that you need. Just go to the top of the temple and jump and God will save you and then you're going to have a following. If, if you'll just bow down and worship me, then I'll give you all the kingdoms of the earth. False religion is not that complicated. It's all about your sinful desires and what you want. 
The gospel, on the other hand, says deny yourself. Take up your cross and follow him. Look to Jesus alone to bring forgiveness of your sin. Jesus has paid the price. You can never pay it. False religion says you can pay the price. You can do what it takes to please God. The true gospel says there's only salvation in one name. The name of the Lord Jesus Christ. High stakes. Two ways of salvation. One is true and glorious and bright. The other is false and dark and leads to destruction. God calls us in this book to contend for the faith. That requires us being able to rightly handle this word. May God give us grace to become more and more equipped to handle the word of God for our own security and to rescue those who don't know it. Let's pray. Father, we come before you. We thank you that you're sovereign and we thank you that no matter what false teaching you allow to go around this globe, that at the same time you have messengers proclaiming the true gospel of Jesus Christ. Father, as we go through first light and become equipped to be better proclaimers of your gospel, may we be those who are speaking the truth even as everyone else hears the screams of the lies of false religion. Father, I pray that we would commit ourselves to deepen our own study of the word, that we would rightly handle your word, that we would be effective for your kingdom, and that we would have the joy of salvation and the joy of seeing others rescued from falsehood and to come to the to our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, we're grateful for your word that gives us warning upon warning upon warning of false teaching. Father, I pray that we would wake up, that we would be alert, that we would learn from what we have learned today on the characteristics of false teachers. We praise you, Lord, that we're kept by Jesus and kept for Jesus. And that gives us great confidence in Jesus' name. Amen.